Hello and welcome to Skyna Today's Last Week in AI podcast. We can hear us chat about what's going on with AI. As usual, in this episode, we will summarize and discuss some of last week's most interesting AI news. You can also check out our Last Week in AI newsletter at lastweekin.ai for articles we did not cover in this episode. I am one of your hosts, Andrei Korenkov, recently finished my PhD at Stanford, and now I work at an AI startup. And uh, similar to what we're doing recently, we have a guest host again. Cool. Uh, hi, I'm Jessica. I am a PhD student in CS at Berkeley. I work with Ben Racked and Nika Hotlub. I don't know, I'm probably interested in the intersection of machine learning, statistical, algorithmic decision making, and broader societal considerations arising from that. I'm also co-founder of Reboot, a publication and community around techno-optimism and reclaiming kind of how we can think about that as a means to build a better future. Uh, yeah, and Jessica, we also work together uh, on The Gradient, which is this little digital magazine with a bunch of articles about AI that uh, is still ongoing. And Daniel, who's been on here as well, has been on it. So I guess we've crossed paths in the life of writing about AI and thinking <laughs> about AI in the past. Yeah, It's been years. It's kind of crazy. I know. Well, before we dive in, as we've been doing, let's do a quick ad for the Super Data Science podcast. So Super Data Science is your go-to podcast for data science. They interview a huge range of cool people. It's the 12th technology podcast globally, which is pretty impressive. They have over 700 episodes. They release twice weekly. It's hosted by John Cron, who you might have already heard on this podcast. He's the chief data scientist and co-founder of the machine learning company Nebula. And he also wrote the best-selling book, Deep Learning Illustrated. Yeah, so if you want to hear about uh, machine learning, data science, and that sort of thing with a big variety of guests, go ahead and check out Super Data Science Podcast. Alrighty, so starting with tools and apps, our first story is Salesforce launches AI Assistant across its apps, which includes Slack and Tableau. So recently, Salesforce had its gigantic conference in San Francisco, Dreamforce, and they announced a variety of things, including some of these AI features. Uh, they call it Einstein Copilot. So continuing with the co-pilot branding we've seen from Microsoft and a few others. And it can summarize video calls. It can deliver personalized answers to customer questions, generate emails for marketing campaigns, and do a whole bunch of other stuff. And now it's already built in into Slack and Tableau as well. Is your lab using Slack, Jessica? Yeah, I actually am on like 10 Slacks at this point that I need to keep track of which is too many. Weirdly, I've never actually found any like non-AI Slack bot to be useful. So I guess I'm curious to see if the actual AI Slack bots will be useful. I I don't know. I had clawed in a couple of workspaces and it's not that interesting beyond, you know, sometimes you ask it something and it says something that's mostly useless. But I don't. maybe I'm just a Luddite when it comes to tools like this. Um, I kind of just feel like 
for example, I don't know that I would necessarily trust a video call summary from one of these chat one of these bots. I guess they're not chat bots, but I guess jury's out, but I'm a little bit skeptical that these will actually be useful. Yeah, I tend to agree. I think for something like Slack, which is a messaging service, we'll have some things like summarizing and maybe some auto reply, but it feels a little bit forced. I think for CRM type stuff, for answers to customer questions or generating emails, that's a more kind of predictable and reasonable kind of thing. But uh, yeah, we move towards every company having a co-pilot and their software is continuing. It's unclear to me though that an act that it would actually be useful. Like I'm pretty sure so I had to do some interactions with Shopify customer support a couple of days ago. And I'm pretty sure they have some sort of language model based chatbot thing that sort of triages tickets. And it was just not it was just not good. Maybe it's just you know, as the kids say, skill issue, but I don't, I don't know. Like, it just wasn't useful to me. And I can't really imagine, um, unless you're just really bad at using the Salesforce product, maybe it can help you give some basic instructions. But I feel like for anything that's really complex, it requires a lot of steps or edge cases. I'm not sure that this kind of thing would help that much. Yeah, it, it really depends on the implementation. I will say something our listeners may not know is that Salesforce has been investing in AI for quite a while. They have a pretty big AI lab that just publishes pure research yeah. uh, and they've published quite a bit. So I do think their in-house talent is probably pretty significant. Uh, so I would I would not be surprised if it's pretty well implemented at least and and not sort of like shoved in there. Yeah, we'll see. On to the next story. Roblox's new AI chatbot will help you build virtual worlds. So for those who don't know, Roblox is this kind of gaming platform where people can make games uh, with different levels of complexities. There's actual coding you can do and you can publish these games. And it's it's very, very big. There's you know millions of users. It's incredibly popular. And they've been rolling out some AI features for a while. And now they have announced this conversational AI assistant called Roblox Assistant that can help populate the virtual worlds on the app. So you can do kind of the fairly predictable things uh, you might imagine of like, you know, add a fire to this, make the uh, weather snowy, all those sorts of things. And they have a little video demo here where you can see typing in a request and then it actually modifies your game scene by placing objects around. And it, it actually looks like it could be really helpful in this case. Yeah, I, I think this is really interesting because Anecdotally, I've heard so many stories of, oh, kids got started programming because they wanted to build games. Like for, like Minecraft is the canonical example, right? But I guess Roblox is newer um, or something. I'm not exactly by the timeline, but I guess if the future is prompt engineering, we'll be training a generation of kids who are really, really good at prompt engineering. At least in this context, that's a little bit of a cynical take. I think the excited version of this is that like, I guess, like creating really custom versions of games and stuff on platforms like these used to be gated on 
a certain technical skill and maybe it's better that the ability to create and you know manifest your vision for the world or whatever is more democratized across you don't have to you know read a bunch of stack overflow to figure out how to do this so maybe that's nice yeah and i think to your point that people learn programming with these kinds of games I do think that it's still possible to go in there and like code the actual logic of a game. This is mostly a, about object placement and maybe some simple logic. So in a way, it actually kind of ties in nicely with this whole assistant copilot angle where it will speed up your addition of objects and assets to a world, but you will still have to then, in addition to doing prompting, you know, actually do hands-on kind of engineering, which is kind of what is the case for programming already and will sort of be the case, it seems, in the future in general. Yeah, I feel like the best ones will still be, you, you can't just like tell it to do, you have to be pretty intentional about what you want it to create for you. Yep. But yeah, if that sounds interesting, we, as always, will have the links in the description to all these articles, and there is a pretty cool little video to really get a good idea of what this is like. On to a quick lightning round. The first story here is that Bybit debuts AI-powered trade GPT for market analysis and data-driven QA. So Bybit is a cryptocurrency exchange and they've released this uh, AI trading assistant that they call TradeGPT that provides market analysis and answers using uh, answers questions using AI. It's built with ChatGPT and then there's some sort of in-house tools GPT that offers real-time market insights and whatnot. I'm kind of surprised this is the first trade GPT. In fact, I, I would be surprised if there hasn't already been a trade GPT kind of thing. Uh, but yeah, now there's another service or maybe the first service offering this, uh, which seems like a bit of a no-brainer. I feel like this is probably just reading tea leaves or like a crystal ball or something. I kind of doubt that this maybe tells you anything that's truly going to beat the market. That said, I feel like it would be interesting to see how people adopting these recommendations, you know, if it's like a large scale of adoption, how this affects sort of the long-term dynamics of strategy. And if it has to change, um, like, you know, other algorithmic training strategies, and if people have a really large response to taking this advice. Yeah, I would be skeptical of the, you know, technical trading insights and so on. But at the same time, clearly, if it's powered by ChatGPT, it will have a lot of the known wisdom around this sort of stuff. So, you know, if nothing else, as an interface to ChatGPT, can't hurt. And related to that, we have China's Ant Group unveils finance AI model as race heats up. So Ant Group has revealed this finance-specific AI model that is being tested on its wealth management and insurance platforms. It's called Zixiazu 1.0, and it can conduct investment analysis and information extraction for the professional uh, for finance professionals. There's also a consumer version which is Zixiriao 2.0, which can match the average financial professional with 
market analysis and reasoning capability. So basically, as a consumer, you can use AI in place of a finance professional to give you advice and so on. Yeah, I feel like, again, I, the main thing I'm interested in is whether widespread adoption of this kind of thing would lead to correlated strategies and therefore potentially correlated failures. Because in theory, the benefit of the free market or whatever is that if everyone's playing to their own optimal strategy or whatever, there's some amount of robustness to shocks built in. But if everyone's using this, I guess not everyone. But I guess a large, if a large amount of trading is happening in correlation to advice that is given by the, like, what does that mean for the broader ecosystem? I'm not sure. I, I'm just curious to see what happens. Right. Yeah. Uh, it's also worth noting, uh, which I don't think I have, that this is still in closed testing. So as we've seen with some of the other giants, Tencent and Alibaba, who have already released these sorts of models to the public, you know, now there's regulations and China, the government actually has to approve this AI model to be able to provide it to consumers. So this is still not out there and presumably they're trying to get that permission, which they do need and other big companies have received in recent weeks to release their models. And moving on to the applications and business section. The first story is that TSMC warns AI chip crunch will last another 18 months. So TSMC is the Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company. So of course, they do a lot with uh, manufacturing semiconductors. They are a semiconductor foundry that's quite significant. And yes, as the article title states, they have said that there will be this ongoing chip crunch for quite a while and that it's due to these somewhat technical things, advanced packaging capacity uh, that seems to imply that what we've been seeing with it being hard to get NVIDIA GPUs will continue to be the case for another year and a half. And that will also be the case with other kind of AI-oriented GPUs like AMD's uh, offerings. I don't use like super high-end compute, so this doesn't perfectly affect me. I guess when scarcity happens, I'm always it always just feels like, well... The people or organizations that have a lot of money will always still be able to sort of just pay their way to get what they need. I guess if people work at Google or OpenAI or whatever Anthropic find this not to be the case, you can tell Andre at the next podcast. But I kind of feel like industry will probably be fine. It might just be academia that continues to get screwed over. But I guess this is nothing new, maybe more an intensification of what has already been happening the last couple of years. Yeah, I think the recent, you know, huge influx of money into AI kind of means that now even if you have money, you're going to be competing with other people who have money to get GPUs uh, somewhat amusingly. So um, yeah, this is going to be the case for a while, it seems, according to a TSMC. Now, there are other... Uh, 
contenders here that don't kind of use TSMC's specific technology, their chip on wafer substrate technology. So Samsung has its own uh, advanced pack- packaging capacity. Intel also does that. So maybe they'll be able to do something. But then again, I don't think they have done any chips for AI and, and really they don't do GPUs. So maybe not. Yeah. Do you know if Google TPUs are also manufactured by TSMC or do they do their own thing? That's a good question. Yeah. So uh, just for context, Google TPUs are a very specialized non-GPU. So it's a tensor uh, processing unit. And yeah, that's like the next level for AI chips and sort of hardware that is pretty much entirely specialized for um, AI. And it's a good question whether Google will have any issues producing their TPUs, which they offer via the cloud. And speaking of Google, the next story is that even AI hasn't helped Microsoft's Bing chip away at Google's search dominance. And the story is pretty much what it says. When Microsoft had their Bing chat release quite a while ago in February, actually half a year ago, feels like forever, uh, a lot of people were projecting that maybe this would be a big deal for Google, that they would lose market share, that this is kind of catastrophic, right? Because Google was late to the race and didn't have their own chatbot at the time. And now with the dust having settled, it seems like not much has happened to Google in this case, or at least it doesn't seem like it. Uh, There's kind of maybe at most a 1% change in the market share of Bing going up. So Bing now has a 3% market share worldwide. That means that they have uh, a 10% increase to 98 million users from recent months, but that is tiny compared to 1.12 billion who use Google. Yeah, so I don't know. I was always a bit skeptical of this notion that AI chat will somehow destroy Google because people just won't need search anymore or something. And maybe that kind of... uh, take was right in this case yeah i mean to be fair i think google has gotten really bad in the last i don't know where the slopes started going down but i do feel like the quality of google search results start declining and so maybe it, it was reasonable to think that there might have been an opportunity for an alternative pathway uh yeah that said i don't think that tablets are really the right interface for doing search yeah, I, I I think I just don't think that it provides that much additional value from I would rather just do the click myself because it's not doing anything more sophisticated than like clicking into the first couple of results and doing some summaries. And I feel like I would rather just do it myself. I feel like if anything, more so than search engines, what really has been impacted is Wikipedia because now if you have a random question, ChatGPT will be pretty good at answering it so you don't have to go to the Wikipedia page of Catherine the Great to ask about her reign, which I actually was doing. I, I you know, was watching a show about Catherine the Great, and then I talked to ChatGPT and like asked it questions that I just 
was thinking about. And as far as I know, it told me the truth. I did later go look at the Wikipedia page, but that's the thing I, that you had to go back and verify. You're like, I'm pretty sure it's right. <laughs> yeah, well, sometimes it's okay to just be like mostly right if you don't critically need to know the true facts of Catherine the Great's life, I guess. Yeah. And on to the lightning round. First story is OpenAI will host its first development conference on November 6th. So this is this new OpenAI Dev Day event that will be starting on November 6th. Lots of companies have these sorts of developer conferences where generally there's announcements and there's you know different panels and stuff like that, keynotes, et cetera, et cetera. So it's, yeah, this is kind of noteworthy in the sense that the way OpenAI makes money is via having this API and having people build stuff on top of JetGPT primarily. And so this having a developer conference pretty much echoes the fact that they are, this is their product. It's, it's a product for developers in big part to build on top of. And it seems like they are continuing to push it. Yeah, I wouldn't sound like such a hater, but I really can't get to see a chat GPT wrapper that, you know, brings me joy or even seems like it could potentially be genuinely something I would want to use. You know, it's actually funny. You may not know this little story, but for the notes of this podcast, we actually do them using chat GPT. <laughs> so we automated our workflow and, and uh, kind of used spreadsheets and then they have all these querying and then... You know, just so that we have nice bullet points, we ask ChatGPT to give us a little summary. But yeah, I think internal tooling and, and some of these kind of hand-built solutions for specific needs are a very kind of simple thing and offering a actually compelling chatbot service is maybe another. Yeah, like I, I feel like these little like you know, when you hook stuff up to the API and just do something that you specifically want to do, I feel like that's different from, like, this is kind of giving hackathon. I don't, it probably isn't going to be like, oh, an undergrad hackathon where you have prizes and you have a demo and you get, you know, you get to pitch to an investor or something like that. That's probably to like that, but I was sort of imagining that vibe and I just hate hackathon projects. That's a separate thing. Um, and I feel like those probably would be that exciting but again i could be wrong so i'll i'll see what's happening on november 6th yeah we'll see i'm, I'm kind of curious uh OpenAI has hosted hackathons in their offices in the past so <laughs> maybe part of this event will be a hackathon who knows and next we don't have any crazy huge funding stories this week but we do have one that i thought would be fun to uh, highlight. We have a story, AI reading coach startup, Elo raises 15 million to bolster child literacy. So that's the story. This is their series A. Elo is a subscription-based service that delivers five books per month to children from kindergarten through uh, grade three. And it uses AI and child speech recognition to provide personalized Tutoring, uh, it listens to children read out loud, analyzes their speech, and kind of wrecks mispronunciations and 
Mist Worlds and does some other thing like teaching critical reading skills. So it's kind of like a Duolingo for kids to learning to read instead of learning another language, I guess. And yeah, we have this uh, fresh round of 15 million. They're pretty early on, but it seems like they are going to be building more with this money. Yeah, I mean, I actually am pretty excited about this. This feels like the kind of thing that like newest developments in AI actually qualitatively do make a difference in terms of how well a product like this could work. Um, I think EdTech has always been, you know, something that tech for impact people have always been really excited about. It hasn't always really panned out, but this actually sounds like, you know, if it works, that's huge. I'd be curious to see how they're measuring progress and how do they know if they're actually teaching kids to read well. But this is, if it works, it'd be really cool. Yeah. And uh, I mean, to me, the benefit is often worth remembering that obviously a human tutor would be better or having your parents teach you to read would be ideal. But in many cases, you can't afford a tutor and maybe it's hard to find the time. So here their monthly subscription of $25 gets you five books and gets you this AI tutor, which is, yeah, just lowers the barrier for people totally. to be able yeah so uh, you know it's it's yeah nice to see something with ai that actually feels like it will help people hopefully and actually needs ai too and not just marketing right right next up we have a story nasdaq gets sec nods for first exchange ai driven order type So the SEC has allowed Nasdaq to launch this first AI-driven order type. It's the Dynamic Midpoint Extended Life Order, which I guess uses reinforcement learning to make real-time adjustments in the waiting period. Honestly, I don't understand too much what this means, but presumably this is a special thing that integrates AI to be more intelligent and makes you know things more competitive with all these super quick trades and I don't know whatever finance people do. Yeah, I was also gonna say I don't know very much about exactly how this kind of stuff works. I'm also a little bit curious what they actually mean by reinforcement learning. I I really can't visualize what this looks like. I guess there's ML theory or ML econ work in theory that's like, you know, how do we do better matching for our two-sided marketplace or whatever, but that's not really RL, so. Yeah, we, both of us are not very uh, uh, informed to make commentary, but I guess I'll I'll just summarize a bit more. Uh, Order types are these uh, instructions that traders use to tell exchanges how to handle the trades. So this is one of these order types that is a set of programmed instructions. And it will, yeah, so the AI technique of this will sort of adjust how the trade is executed programmatically, as far as I can understand. And on to something that we are at least somewhat more uh, capable of commenting upon. We have a story, NVIDIA adds new software that can double H100 inference performance. So this is about 
the update to their TensorRT software for LLMs, which is has been announced and will be, I guess, releasing alongside these ML perf benchmarks that show how good hardware is at various things. And as the article title states, this TensorRT-LLM apparently really crazily speeds things up. So it, it, it does give you twice the performance on these large language type models, such as you know Llama and Falcon and all these other things we've talked about. Yeah, that's really cool. My work, again, doesn't really require these. So, you know, I'm looking at these charts right now. They look great. <laughs> Do you have a sense of on, like, what exactly the changes on a software level are so that, you know, you don't even have to, it seems like you don't have to switch the hardware. You just do better. Right. Yeah. So this is something that NVIDIA, that's part of the reason for dominance is they've had this CUDA software for a long time. And now they have also TensorRT, which is kind of, I don't know, the execution for things related to AI models. And there are a few details here. So they say that the in-flight batching uh, helps basically in AI. You do batch processing of uh, outputs or inputs. You kind of bundle together a bunch of things you want to process. And... Um, output things and here they kind of optimize that batching process so that there's no bottlenecks basically as far as i can understand so basically optimizations on scheduling so to speak i see yeah this might be a dumb question but would the same kind of approach work on an a100 just because like i don't know talking to my friends who actually do use large amounts of compute there you like a100 pretty much the like biggest thing they have access to in academia yeah that's a good question i'm not sure why they release these uh, h100 maybe it's for some reason especially good on this one uh maybe it's better for lower end hardware in some sense but Man. uh yeah we'll have the ml perf benchmark so it seems like soon there'll be more info than this kind of preview on to projects and open source. First story is Meta reportedly building open source gen generative AI system to rival OpenAI's ChatGPT. So this is, yeah, still pretty much a rumor, but there's uh, this juicy rumor that Meta is building an open source model that is more powerful than GPT-4. So for somewhere, there's a rumor that Meadow's new model will be several times more powerful than Llama 2 that was released pretty recently. And Llama 2 was already pretty significant. It was, they had a 70 billion parameter version. It was open sourced and people could use it in business applications, except for very, very giant companies. So yes, yeah, supposedly they are now going to go even beyond Llama 2 and release something that can rival GPT-4, which hasn't been open sourced so far. Um, yeah, so we've covered a lot of meta open sourcing stuff in recent months. There's been a ton of them. There's been Code Llama, Llama, Seamless, M4T, AudioCraft, 
and Facet. We've had all these stories, and it seems like they are very much insistent on kind of hammering the competition by offering free things for free models for people to build with. Yeah, I was going to say, what is Meta's incentive to do this? But I guess it's mostly, I guess the hope that the proliferation of access to these models means that whatever the threshold is for the, like, there's like, you have to be below a certain revenue threshold, right? And the only company that excludes are like Google and Microsoft. So I, I guess that's what their incentive is. Um, I don't know whether that whether that'll work, but that's a separate question. Um, there's a couple of interesting papers, articles that have come out recently about whether this really counts as open source. I haven't gone through those carefully, but um, I think the broader critique still is that, like all of this, still requires super centralized like serving hosting. It's really you can't if you're a random person with a laptop. It's, you know, get checkout and start using it. It's there's sort of a process there. I don't know how like the extent to which I like fully buy those arguments, but I feel like it's something interesting to keep in mind at least. Um, you know, what does this actually mean? I'm sure you've talked about this in the pod in the past as well, so I don't want to, you know, beat a dead horse. But yeah. Right. I mean I, I do think it's still uh an interesting question of, from a business perspective, what does open sourcing software get you? And it's not like there's massive kind of rivals in the social media space that Meta is undercutting with this. They're not Rest in, in peace, Google Twitter. Game. <laughs> yeah, uh, X. Twitter is social X. media platform formerly known as Twitter. Right. Um, it is also worth noting that a lot of this uh, is being released with licenses that are specifically for academics. So I think the one of the justifications for Meta is legitimately that they believe that open sourcing is good for academia and research. Yen LeCun has a lot of influence leading Meta's AI efforts and seems to be a huge proponent of this view that open sourcing models and letting people build on top of each other's data and models will just benefit everyone. So at least part of it seems to be that as to why to open source for business use, you know, there's probably a mix of reasons, I guess. Second story, Indian developers top hugging face leaderboard with Gen Z 70B. So this is from the Analytics India mag. I guess why it focuses on the Indian developers aspect. And uh, yeah, this is this fine-tuned language model, Gen Z 70B. It uh, is pretty high up there, number six for open language models in all categories. And it comes with a commercial license and... Yeah, pretty much showcases how we are continuing to see more and more proliferation of open source models, how this is actually fine-tuned on top of Llama 270B. So they have built on top of it, have done fine-tuning to improve its reasoning, role-playing, and writing, and now, you know, I guess developed a more powerful technology that similarly anyone can use. So 
seems sort of indicative of a general trend and movement and what the release of Lama 2 has enabled. Yeah, I guess I'm a little bit skeptical of, I guess, the entire project of having a Hugging Face mirror board. Uh, it's not clear to me that benchmarks are any longer the best way to evaluate large models. Like, I guess, in ImageNet era back when you know, you publish a paper and you beat soda by 16%. Um, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense to have a benchmark. It's not obvious to me now what benchmarks are really measuring. I, yeah, I feel like if you actually want to have a qualitative understanding, you would need to somehow have like a private test set or something. I guess I'm worried about the existence of, you know, like leakage into, into, into the training set of these benchmarks. I might just be saying stuff, but anecdotally, I feel like this is a view that's kind of shared. Um, I'd be curious to see what you think. And I also, um, if you look at the actual distribution of the leaderboard, it's like, I don't know, there's like a pretty steep cliff. Um, So like a ranking of, you know, if you're like two places below a, a different model, that doesn't mean you're like that close. You might be like, substantially worse but it's just that there's no models in between or something but i don't know i think it's cool to see that people are building better models still it's just not clear to me that this kind of thing is the best way to measure better yeah we've we've chatted about this whole benchmarking challenge previously how do you actually measure the performance of language models here they got a score on the mmlu benchmark we're measuring massive multitask language understanding uh, benchmark, which is one of these mega benchmarks, include a bunch of different stuff and kind of just averages it. So that gets you a high level view of a variety of skills, but then sort of abstracts away a lot of uh, the details, right? And as you say, at the end, you sort of wind up with a number that is correlated with what you might expect using it, but uh, you don't get too much qualitative insight. So it's it's an ongoing issue, but I suppose from a company perspective, this is from Acubit's technology, a full-service software development and technology consulting company in India with a corporate office in the U.S. For them, this is kind of showing off to their potential clients, presumably. And apparently, this is the uh, fifth large language model they have open-sourced. So... I guess it's cool to see other industry players also open sourcing things like Meta. They're kind of a trendsetter. It's surprising, yeah. And our last story in this section is about A16Z, the venture capital firm, and how they announced the open source AI grant. So there's they have a pretty short little post that talks about how open source is great and then announces this grant where you can apply and get funding as an open source developer to publish software. And they announced the first batch of grant recipients and funded projects. Uh, So there are examples here like John Durbin at Aeroboros, which is instruction tuning LLMs on synthetic Data. They have Eric Hartford, which is for fine-tuning on sensor LLMs. So that's kind of bypassing all these security restrictions you get 
in a lot of this software and, and some other things that deal with uh, fine-tuning LLMs for different applications or building software around LLMs. All of this is LLMs, so I guess this is the open source uh, LLM AI grant or foundation model AI grant. Yeah, that's a good point you make. I guess now AI just means LLMs. Yeah, I don't know. This still this feels good. If you really wanted to be picky, you would be like, oh, what is A16B really up to? What are they trying to do? I don't know. I'm I'm pretty happy that this exists. Yeah, I think to your point, right, that as a small team or individual, if you do get the sort of grant, you then would actually be able to pursue some meaningful project with these giant models, right? So with Llama 2, you can download the 70 billion weights, but you won't actually be able to run it unless you pay for really expensive compute on the cloud. And like it, it adds up very quickly, right? So this yeah. will definitely help some people. On to the research and advancement section, which I guess is, is where you are at home currently, Jessica. We have a bunch of stories, starting with artificial intelligence allows paralysis patients to speak for the first time in 18 years. So the short version is researchers at the University of California developed a device that restores communication in paralyzed patients who are unable to speak. It's based on surgically implanting electrodes and having this digital avatar. So basically via these electrodes, you can make this computer face kind of talk and say things uh, out loud. And the AI portion here is the translation from the electrocorticography, the ECOG you know, signal from the brain implants uh, being translated to words and voice that the avatar speaks via AI. And we've seen this in the past. We've discussed some examples of translating brain signals into kind of actual usable signals we've seen this thing where you could actually kind of have a very raw visualization of what someone is thinking they had people like think about some image we've also seen some research on if you think about a song can nai from brain readings create a little uh, song snippet that matches it so this seems to be very much in line with that and obviously if this technology does allow paralyzed patients and people who have you know, various limitations to be able to express themselves, that's pretty amazing. Yeah, I feel like this is one of the sort of obvious, exciting application areas of you know, new advances in AR or whatever is about like, you know, helping people with disabilities or people who experience injuries or whatever. Um to like engage with the rest of the world that's not really built for, you know, it kind of assumes a certain set of abilities. And I feel like this is pretty uncritically good for now. Um, maybe in like 20 years, it'll become a corporate hellhole situation. But like, this is pretty, it feels pretty transformative. Um, and that, that feels like a good thing. I don't know about the avatars though. Like I, I don't, I don't know how I would feel about having like a. I'm imagining like like a mesh face 
you were talking about and it just like has a mouth that moves i don't know if that's actually what it is but that's what it sounds like from the summary i feel like that might be a little weird but yeah overall, yeah this feels great. i um not sure actually i'm locked out of seeing the paper because it's in nature <laughs> oh classic so, yeah classic so I'm, I'm unable to look at the graphics uh if you don't know nature is this prestige research publication venue and unlike things like archive you have to pay to be able to read this stuff they charging 30 bucks a month so as someone outside academia i don't think i'll i'll be paying that but uh, there are some more details that are worth mentioning so they state in an abstract that they get pretty rapid decoding they have 78 words per minute and they have a median word error rate of 25 percent so you know not that accurate but then again, you're going from neural signals to be able to decode words. That still is prob probably impressive. I will also say that having not been able to read the paper, I don't know how much of this is entirely novel. It could be that it's the general system of decoding the words and then translating to audio and this avatar this combina combination of things that's most notable or maybe the actual word decoding is also a real advance here uh, but yeah it's clearly pretty good and as an example that not everything is chatbots in ai right yeah like i wonder what kind of you know, if A3TV were to fund independently, although do we want them to get into the business of helping people speak? I don't know. <laughs> I mean, this is why we need research grants, right? To actually work yeah. on things that are not in industry. Yeah, now announcing the A16B PhD fellowship. No during the task. <laughs> you know, that might be coming given how many Berkeley and Stanford people end up doing s startups. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And next story, actually speaking of benchmarking as we did before, this paper is efficient benchmarking of, in uh, brackets, of language models. So this is all about this topic of how can we efficiently benchmark language models in particular and it explores basically different design choices that allow you to benchmark more quickly without i guess using as much data while still getting a good result uh, they focus on one particular benchmark as an example they have this cool new jargon term decision impact on reliability and they just kind of found that it's possible to save a bunch of computation and still get pretty good reliability via some tricks. Yeah, that's interesting. I'm like speed running the archive right now, which obviously is giving me very little information in actuality. But this feels like, okay, if you accept the premise that benchmarks are the best we can do to evaluate models or language models specifically, this feels like it's pretty useful. That said, I guess I wonder if in some alternative universe where someone very smart comes up with a different way to evaluate language models overall without doing benchmarks, maybe that itself would intrinsically be less compute intensive. That's a pipe dream, maybe. I don't know what that would even look like. 
But I, I think it's kind of a nice, I think reading their abstract, you know, they're trying to tease out what decisions at design time um, affect the downstream goodness of the evaluation. I feel like that's like a useful framework, even if I don't know about this metric itself, um, having not actually read the paper, but um, I think the, even just like the framework of having a way to reason about what impacts your decisions on a technical level have on your evaluation. That's, that sounds useful. Yeah. And uh, I think kind of related to something we were discussing earlier with, you know, this compute question and the cost of things, this is working on Helm, the data set and kind of showing how it can be made more uh, efficient. And Helm is one of these massive benchmarks that have a, a ton of different tasks. So even if you just want to evaluate a model that let's say you fine-tuned or you messed with and get this metric, it might cost you quite a bit in compute and so on. So there's actually a variety of details and findings they have with respect of how you make things more um, kind of reliable and efficient, but the end result is they have this flesh helm that reduces the computation costs by up to 200 times while basically being as reliable and giving you the correct rank of models. And this is you know, less about the particular metric and I think more in particular about getting the right rankings. Yeah, so that's good to see. And uh, certainly if you have open leaderboards where you're allowing anyone to submit and you want to be able to evaluate it and things like that, it's good to have efficient benchmarking and it's good to continue getting more insights about how to do LLM stuff properly. On to the lightning round. First, we have online AI-based test for Parkinson's disease. Severity shows promising results. This is from the uh, University of Rochester, and it shows an approach that allows people to remotely test the severity of Parkinson's symptoms within minutes. It has the users tap their fingers 10 times in front of a webcam and assesses the motor performance on a scale from zero to four. And it, I guess, uses AI to make this assessment using the MDS UPDRS guidelines, which I suppose are the standard for being able to rank this uh, motor performance uh, topic. So that's pretty much a story. I guess it makes a bit of sense that you can automate the processing of data from the sort of thing and clearly pretty nice to be able to do this from home instead of going to the hospital. Yeah, um, I'm looking at the archive version of this paper now. It's kind of interesting on... It seems like, because I was like, oh, I feel like when people report these kind of performance thing, you look at the actual chart and it's like the error bars are like right on top of each other or something. But it looks not too, it doesn't look too bad. It's <laughs> 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 potentially what my PLDR is. Uh, yeah, I mean, obviously I spent like 10 seconds scrolling through this paper in the time that 
uh, you were reading this summary, but yeah, I, I guess this is promising. You know, as always, I feel like with medical applications, you have to be really, really sure that it actually works before you roll it out to a lot of people. But I mean, at least these preliminary results suggest it's worth, you know, trying to do a bigger study and verifying it. Yeah, it could be useful. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so these results are from 250 global participants of Parkinson's disease and they compared VAI systems ratings to those of free neurologists and free primary care physicians. So expert neurologists did perform better than the AI models, but AI outperformed the primary care physicians with this certification. Uh, so yeah, it is it is initial work. It is preliminary work. It never can be translated to actual application. 250 people is a lot, all of that. But still, it's uh, yeah, seems like a, another way AI could be applied in a nice way. Yeah, the, the other interesting thing is they also make this point that the human gold standard experts also don't always agree. Like, obviously, there's some alignment there, but there is a decent amount of variance too in how humans would evaluate it. So it's also just like an interesting thing to consider. And our last story for this section, scientists use machine learning to perform quantum error correction. So scientists from the Riken Center for Quantum Computing have shown a way to use machine learning to perform error correction for quantum computers. If you don't know, quantum computers are these fancy advanced future technology where we try to use uh, quantum mechanics. Well, actually, present-day computers already run on quantum mechanics. That's what semiconductors are. But the idea here is that instead of having a binary bit, you have this qubit, which kind of is not binary, has some complicated state. I don't know. Honestly, it's a little bit beyond me. But the point is, quantum computers don't work so well right now because it's very hard to maintain uh, consistency and, and for things to actually retain their state. And that's why you need error correction, at least with present-day techniques. Uh, there's going to be all these little errors that pop in as state degrades. And so there's quite a few, quite a bit of work on error correction in today's quantum computers. And here they present the method using machine learning with reinforcement learning to optimize something called bosonic cupid encodings. And they find an encoding that manages to do error correction better than previous techniques. Yeah. Once again, I opened this archive which is like, you know, impossible for me to read because this is not my area at all. And I was trying to find out if they were actually using URL. Seems like maybe they are. It seems like it's just like a, they're trying to do it different. I'm not sure why they need RL, but maybe that's like a specific like a feature of the thing they're trying to optimize in quantum that I don't really understand. It seems like it actually is RL and not, they're not just saying that. So I guess that's good. It's not false advertising. Um, yeah, I don't know. It's cool people are working on this. Yeah, I think my guess would be that, you know, in reinforcement learning, you got to do trial and error. And for optimization, if you can't fully model your system, 
then you need to do trial and error to see how it impacts performance. So it it may have to do with that. And similarly, you've seen RL being used to optimize algorithms, for instance, like sorting yeah. and so on. Yeah, it makes sense, I guess, in this case. Like if you, you know, whatever action you take actually does affect the, the whatever, the state, I don't know what the correct uh, quantum term for that is, but it, it makes sense. I don't know anything about quantum, but it makes sense. Right. Yeah. If if you do try to read the paper, uh, which is unarchived, so you can if you want, but it the second sentence is bosonic code spaces where a single photon loss represents the dominant source of error are promising candidates for AQEC due to their flexibility and controllability. So it pretty much loses me on the second sentence. Uh, so yeah. clearly we can't say too much about this. On to the policy and safety section. First story is tech leaders, including Musk, Zuckerberg, and others, call for government action in AI. So last week, there was this kind of famous hearing in the US Congress where a whole bunch of people were invited. We talked about the set of invited guests when that came out. There were a bunch of rich people so, of course, Zuckerberg, Musk, there was also Bill Gates, I believe, and various other high-profile industry leaders. Of course, a couple of people from, or at least uh, Sam Altman from OpenAI, I believe, and, and various other people. Anyway, this hearing happened last week. It was a six-hour uh, event. Actually, I'm not sure if it's a hearing, but it was a six-hour kind of conversation with lawmakers in the Senate and all of these people related to AI. And uh, just from the summary here, you know, it sounds like it was a pretty wide-ranging discussion. The There was various topics raised. One of them was actually open source models, and there was pushback on Meta's approach of open sourcing very powerful models. And, and suggestion that maybe the government should restrict that. And there are many other kind of components here on the potential uses of AI. So Bill Gates suggested it can be used to solve world hunger. Uh, there was discussion about jobs and, and so on. Senator Schumer brought up the idea of a new regulator for AI. So a lot of stuff happened here, right? And a lot of people attended, I guess, more than two-thirds of senators. So if nothing else, this seems like it was probably informative. And apparently one person quipped that the session could be called Schumer University. Yeah. Um, so Deb Rodney, who in my group at Berkeley, was also there. And yeah, she was saying that it seemed like just a lot of, like, why did Bill Gates say that it could solve world hunger? Why does that make any sense? Yeah, it seems to me, like, my take on this is I can't tell how much, you know, like, work actually gets done in this kind of thing versus the ability to tell the public that this kind of thing has convened. I guess it's not true. I didn't realize that so much of the Senate actually showed up to this thing. Um, so maybe it's worth thinking about what the consequences there actually mean for, you know, the general policymaker perception of what AI is and what it can do. But 
Yeah, I guess we'll just have to wait and see what the downstream consequences something like this is. Again, it's like very strange. It's very strange to me, like the the level of claims that are being made here. But yeah, maybe people can see through it. I don't know. Right. Yeah, I think I guess the idea of the session was almost a Q and A with all these you know impactful people in AI. So. Uh, Senator Schumer led the first three hours with all these executives, and then there was another senator who took over asking questions. Sounds like, yeah, maybe it's useful to, you know, bring these uh, lawmakers up to speed who probably have not been listening to last week in AI and and don't know <laughs> all about what's going on. On the other hand, it does sort of just allow for these industry players to jockey for their preferred future of AI, which I guess would be the case anyway. So maybe that is useful for efficiency's sake. Yeah, I guess it's interesting because like, if you look at the list, of, there's a whole controversy on Twitter too. If you look at the list of who's fighting and things like that, it's like tech CEOs and then civil society... Well, heads of civil society organizations, which is good in principle, but it's not clear the extent to which they have experience with AI. So it's, I feel like it's almost hard for the civil society people to say things like, oh, this is what we think the impact of this technology will be on our field because, you know, their primary mandate is not to talk about what the, or like not to think about what the impact of AI will be. It's like to manage their organization. But yeah, I guess hard to say exactly what happened in that meeting. Right. Yeah. So this was a closed uh, session. The reporters couldn't make it in to report. And I guess that's why we haven't heard a lot of specifics. But I guess this meeting just happening is itself a big deal. And it sounds like it was kind of broad without any sort of consequential outcomes. Next, we have a story, US court rules that AI-generated artwork cannot be copyrighted. So that apparently this is the first legal finding that established legal limitations on protections for AI-generated works. The history here is a little more complicated. So this is coming from a United States district judge. This is related to Stephen Thaler, a computer scientist and someone who's been actually in litigation around copywriting things from AI for quite a while. So back in 2012, actually, there was an attempt to copyright this uh, artwork. And there's been various rulings and lawsuits uh, ever soon and ever since. But I guess in this case, it might be particularly uh, significant. So it does seem to establish a legal limitation in terms of not being able to copyright AI art. At the same time, it's worth noting that in this case, the program that Failure used just did its own thing. Failure had no input to the system at all. It just generated something entirely by itself. So this might not be relevant for text-to-image models. Still, I guess we'll see a lot more legal arguments with respect to this. And this could be a precedent for future policy. Yeah, I, I think it'd be interesting to see where the line gets drawn between computational art versus 
you know, AI generated art, probably there are some distinction made in the case, but yeah, I guess more to come in the next few years of part. Exactly. Uh, curiously, also, this article mentions that this year the Copyrights Office published guidelines for AI artworks that require applicants to indicate which parts were created by human and an algorithm. So, you know, now you get a, you know, this part was this Photoshop AI filter tool, and this part was me using the Photoshop uh, crop tool myself. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. On to the lightning round. First, we have two senators propose a bipartisan framework for AI laws. So, this is coming from Senator Richard Blumenthal and Senator. Josh Hawley, and they have this proposed regulatory framework. It would require licensing and auditing of AI, the creation of an independent federal office to oversee AI, and liability for privacy and civil rights violations, among other things. There was a U.S. Senate judiciary hearing on this proposed framework with a bunch of discussions. And uh, yeah, as far as I know, this is the first uh, kind of framework that's been put forward by U.S. lawmakers to regulate AI. And that's something we've discussed in the past with respect to Europe's AI Act, which is coming close to fruition, and China having already passed some laws regulating generative AI. It's hard to say what the framework actually is without reading it. I guess I don't know enough about the policy landscape to, I feel like Bill Gates introduced all the time, you know? Um, and so I guess this one got a New York Times profile, but it's actually you know, anything of, you know, downstream implications that are concrete limitations on, on, on what you can or can't do. Like, I don't know. It, this all sounds great, you know, licensing, auditing, an independent office. I feel like all of this is just so early, um, but I guess it's better that it, some stuff is happening now versus later. Right. And I think just reading a little bit through the details of this hearing, very much unlike the topic we just discussed of the session with all the CEOs, this one was fairly specific. So the discussions covered things like licensing regimes, oversight bodies, export controls, and things like misinformation. Sounds like it was a little more specific. And at least in the US sense, the fact that this is a bipartisan proposal from you know, two senators does mean that it has some hope of actually ending up being legal and, and something that happens as opposed to just being an idea that was put forward. So it it seems to be worth keeping an eye on, although it is, as you say, very early. And last story for this section, US Copyright Office invites public to comment on AI. So related again to this copyright topic, the US Copyright Office has launched a study on AI and copyright law, and they have invited the public to share their insights. The study aims to inform Congress and uh, guide regulatory endeavors, and is uh, one among many, actually. So various US agencies have initiated 
uh, inquiries and public forums for feedback about AI. Yeah, I feel like the thing with Ethan's, it's cool, but also how do you even get, quote unquote, the public to like know that this exists, like be willing to submit a comment, know how to submit a comment. Um, like it's nice to say that there's this form available for people to submit or like there's an people can send to, but then there's also the question of how do you solicit feedback? Because, you know, as a person just walking around, I don't know that there was, you know, all of these things available for public comment, but maybe right. they have like a distribution plan or something that I just don't know about. Right. Yeah. If it's unclear, I guess you would have to basically know about this, but if nothing else, if you're someone like a stakeholder involved in this, for instance, if you are an artist and you want to have a, you have opinions about copyright and this is a big topic, of course, with text-to-image models, where we can copyright things generated by present-day models that were trained partially on copyrighted data, things like that. If you are someone who wants to have an impact and, and has opinions, I suppose, hopefully, you might be aware of this just from following the topic and caring about the topic. Although I do imagine kind of a general public is less likely to use this option. And it sounds like there are 34 questions here that are delving into various issues like training, transparency, copyrightability, infringement, labeling, and other things. So yeah, it, it, I guess it's not sure to what extent this public feedback matters, but if nothing else, it's good that there's some of it. Yeah. <laughs> And on to the last section, the synthetic media and art section. And the first story is that the Venice Film Festival of this year, which happened a couple weeks ago, according to Forbes, is Cinematic AI's coming out party. So right now, the uh, as we discussed, there's a lot of... Um, Hollywood offers and actors on strike, partially due to AI, and that's still ongoing. At the same time, there was this very big festival, the Venice Film Festival, where you typically have some important awards. And there have been, yeah, a few examples here of how AI is starting to make it into Hollywood. So for instance, there was this movie here by Robert Zemeckis, in which AI was used to de-age a couple people, Tom Hanks and Roman Wright. And we've seen that also before with Martin Scorsese. So de-aging seems to be a popular application of AI that's getting better. And there were some other examples. There was a film by Harmony Korine, who's kind of a... Um, a tour director that has made some weird and, and kind of outer films and he released this uh, AI film or premiered the AI film Agrodrift which used stable diffusion to create the film's visuals and there's a little clip in the story that you can see it is pretty striking and there are a few other things here so there were actual uh announcements of free AI film studios launching. And we've already discussed the whole South Park AI generated episode thing. Well, that company actually announced 
uh, for real TV show that they will be working on as opposed to just at uh, South Park, which is more of a research project. Yeah, I I don't know. This all sounds extremely not interesting or something like that. Like Tom Hanks said he could see an AI version of himself acting after his death. Like, why not just hire a new actor? Like, there are actors that are currently alive that could also, you know, play in movies. Um, this thing about, oh, people can come home after a long day to ask for a new movie starring themselves and Marilyn and Monroe. Like, I would rather watch, I don't know, a good, like, I can't imagine that movie being good, you know? <laughs> Right. Yeah, I think uh, these are kind of like tech demos, really, right? These are a few examples of AI starting to be more prominent as just a technology and as a tool more so. Uh, so I guess this new movies of, or this term of cinematic AI is kind of strange where the one of the particular examples is about the company Pillars having this AI cinema technology suite called the Pillars Engine, which will enable AI VFX, uh, text-to-video, and things like that. So I think what this seems to be hinting at is AI is for things like de-aging or for things like filtering or special effects uh, rather than you know to make entire movies or whatever. Although you can, of course, write science fiction about that and, and think about what might happen in the far future. Yeah, I feel like if it really is used as a creative tool, it could be interesting. I guess I would say my benchmark or like litmus test rules is like, are you using it to do something that you genuinely couldn't do before? Or are you trying to just like, I don't know, the whole sag for strike thing too? Like, are you just trying to replace human labor? Um, or are you trying to genuinely explore like what you can do with this kind of creative tool i guess in a not a gimmicky way right yeah so some i i would say yeah tag demo type stuff pretty early on with some people just trying stuff out but uh it is it is interesting and once again if you go to the article itself you can watch these videos for a better sense of it and last story Revolution Software is using their own AI technology to remake Broken Sword. Revolution Software is a game developer, and they are remaking this oldish game called Broken Sword, which was released back in, I think, the 90s. And they are saying that they'll be using AI technology they have developed to upscale the game's animation. And they argue that this will allow the studio to have their animators do more and have less manual work. This was highlighted in, uh, you know, am among uh, an ongoing conversation, of course, among visual artists as to whether they want industry to adopt AI with things like upscaling or with image generation. And this is an example of sort of them making the case that they have created their own internal AI tool and that in this case, it is really for streamlining their own process and that, yeah, I guess they, they argue that there shouldn't be pushback about this. It should be okay for them to 
be doing this and it it's for the best i suppose yeah it's a little announcement they're very careful about they know exactly what people are going to say and they're trying to be careful about it yeah as someone who's not a game developer um but it this seems like fine to me i feel like there's always these horror stories of how toxic and horrible it is to work at game studios especially around deadline and stuff like that so i actually feel like if it's possible to lighten the load at all like that could be you know a good and useful path forward i don't think it can replace actual developers and i don't think they're claiming it will but you know i feel like people shouldn't be pulling you know 20 hour games for a week before the deadline and that this maybe if it can help with that could be good yeah definitely and um I think, yeah, it's an interesting example of these developers, smaller developers, starting to make the case for using AI for projects. You know, this is not EA, this is not a giant corporation that could just hire artists to do this work. There's another example, actually, uh, that we can highlight. There was recently a Kickstarter for a new board game a sequel or or another board game from the developer of the popular terraforming mars game and the in this kickstarter they disclosed using ai per uh, kickstarter's policy to disclose the use of ai and argued that you know their team of artists that they have always worked with are using that so it's not replacing any human workers it's really enabling their team to develop more art assets quicker. And there's quite a long interview that um, I'll also include in addition to this of the CEO discussing the controversy that ensued when they announced in the Kickstarter that their artists would be using AI to generate some of the assets. Alrighty. Well, with that, we have finished another episode. Thank you so much, Jessica, for coming on as a guest co-host. Yeah, this was super fun. And my neighbor with a leaf blower have now stopped um, doing a leaf blower. <laughs> Perfect. Perfect. <laughs> you know. uh, for any regular listeners, uh, I think we'll have another guest co-host next week. Our timelines are just not matching with Jeremy, but we'll be back together soon. Don't worry. As always, thank you for listening, and you can go to lastweekin.ai for the text version of this podcast with a whole bunch of other stories. As always, we'd appreciate your reviews and you sharing this podcast and making us more famous than we already are. But all that aside, please do uh, be sure to keep tuning in.